All right. Well, welcome everyone to the second week of our Bible study online with Christ Church Jerusalem. Um, the uh, the voices of kings and prophets. We're spending a whole year in the Haftarah. And as you heard last week, as you may have known from before, the Haftarah might sound very familiar, but it can be a misleading title as um, it's not the word Torah that's in there. It's not like half of the Torah. It's actually the closing, um, the the goodbye sections of readings that are read every week in Jewish synagogues around the world. Um, typically, every week they will read from the parsha, the section of the Torah, and then afterwards there is a piece of the Nevi'im that has a thematic connection to what they read from Torah that week. And that's what we call the Haftarah. So we're going to jump around scripture constantly from prophet to prophet, from King's story to Chronicle's story. And it could feel jarring and not so chronological, but that's okay because it is thematically connected to the story of scripture in the first five books. So um, tonight we are entering, as you can see on the screen, a section called Noah. And uh, we have two passages together from Isaiah 54 and 55 that our friend, um, brother Deacon John will be speaking about uh, with us tonight uh, to, to better understand, first of all, who this Noah guy really is in the context of scripture and how these passages of Isaiah relate to it. So John, without further ado, if you have any uh, introductory thoughts, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah. Um, I think the first thing that we can do is to go ahead and pray as we study who our God is. So, Father, we come before you and we worship you. We want to glorify your name. We recognize that you are God, that you are God who is merciful, and you are slow to anger, and yet you still have judgment and holiness you are holy you are a god who can judge who is able to judge unlike any of us are capable of um, and so i pray that we would be careful how we act what we do um, here on earth um, not only as individuals but also as a community that we would uphold that which is righteous that we would uphold those who are barren and those who are poor and those who are needy um, for it is you who declared that you seek out those who are foolish those who are lost just as you shout out each one of us here um, so as we study i pray that we would learn more about who you are and that we would conform ourselves to walk in the image that you created us to walk in I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So we are studying the second parasha for um, the Jewish study, or in some ways it's the third, um, which is the study of Noah, or Noah, um, which is found starting in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verse 10 and 11, all the way through chapter 11, which is the start of Abraham. Um, as Phil mentioned, at the end of each uh, week of reading, you will have a closing reading. And this is often done uh, in the prophets, in the 
uh, writing, in this case, uh, the writing is found in Isaiah chapter 54. Um, as there are many different uh, groups of Jewish people who study in different ways, um, interestingly enough, the majority of them do go ahead and read from Isaiah 54 and 55, although to varying degrees in how much. Some only a few, eight verses, some all the way through both chapters. Um, but we will start with Isaiah 54, and we'll go back and compare some of the concepts with the book of Genesis chapter 6, verses uh, 9 and 10 through 11.32. But we will read first. King, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of who her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphire. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncle and all your wall of precious stone. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. 
the, the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the water, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation that you did not know, or that did not know you, shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. We'll pause there. Um, if we have time, which we won't, because I know uh, we'll want to talk uh, and study as deeply as possible. But if we do have time, we can go on uh, from verses 6 through 12. So obviously we have, um, if we're studying at the end of the parasha, uh, reading of Noah, we have this very obvious connection in chapter 54, verse 9, uh, where Isaiah refers to the days of Noah, or really, um, as God is speaking, you have uh, God referring to the days of Noah. And uh, we might be tempted to jump in there, but um, the Jewish people included verses 1 through 8. Uh, specifically 1 through 6. So let's start uh, where they do and, and see if there's a reason for that. We have at the very end of the passage, uh, the parasha is the very beginning of the days of Abraham. So uh, in chapter 11, you go through the genealogy of Noah. You end up with a family um, that moves from Ur, and they're walking towards Canaan, but they stop halfway there. And within this family, you have a, um, let's call him a middle-aged man, um, Abram, uh, who we are familiar with as Abraham. And eventually, he will have um, children, and you will have the beginning of the children of Israel uh, develop from a covenant that God makes with Abraham, even as he uh, made a covenant with Noah in chapter um, 9. Um, but here we have in Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 6, These two people, or really there's three, but we'll start with two. First, you have someone who is desolate, someone who is barren, someone who seems to be ashamed and disgraced. And then you have someone who has many children, 
someone who is married. Um, and uh, when you look at the two people, uh, you're going back to, um, at least according to Paul, uh, in Galatians chapter 4, uh, he's going to refer to Hagar and Sarai. Now, interestingly enough, we often think of um, Sarah, eventually we'll call her, although Sarai at the time, since she did not have children, she was barren, she could not sing aloud or have joy. In fact, even as she's entering into the prospect of having children, she laughs, but not because of the joy. Uh, she laughs because she assumes that it is not possible anymore for her to have children. And you have Hagar, who perhaps we often think of in a um, either an unfortunate light or even a, a bad light. Um, but in fact, um, she has a child. Um, and this child is good. Uh, God uh, will bless the child eventually, um, even though they struggle through some very difficult times. Um, but one of the things that I want to open up a little bit and we can talk about later is this concept that it's a little bit blurred. Who is the one that is barren? Who is the one that's desolate? And who is the one who has many children? Because we find in verse 1 that it's the barren one that is supposed to call out to sing, to have joy, because she will have more children than the one who is already married. But when you get to uh, verse 5, who's married? Well, it's Israel. Um, it's the one who is barren, right? And so you have this very interesting interplay, and the Bible likes to do this, where it'll make statements, and then it will make statements that seem slightly opposite. And it's doing this for a reason. It's not just, you know, it's not just bad writing. It's not a situation where a person writes and then two minutes later if they're continuing writing they're like oh wait no that's wrong let's just not correct it uh this woman actually had a husband um in fact her husband is the maker of the universe the lord of hosts the holy one of israel uh the redeemer the god of the whole earth right so you have both the barren one and the one who has a husband, and that husband is God. And then you have um, in Galatians chapter 4, um, the, the one who has children also has some benefits, some uses, some um, greatness to be had. Um, perhaps not as great as the one who is barren, but there is still... Um, good there. So let's let's open up a little bit here, looking at what will happen. 
Well, the one who is barren will be able to enlarge their tent. They will be able to add people. Of course, um, if you go to certain parts of the Middle East, even to this day, if you have children, you'll you'll actually build your house larger and larger uh, because unlike um, some cultures, um, family is incredibly important and parents are more than happy to have their children stay roughly at home. So they will actually enlarge their house. They will build more and more so that their children can stay with them and live in the same community as a family, as a family unit who work together, serve one another. Um, if childcare is needed, uh, different parts of the family can help each other, serve each other. And then here you have the same concept to enlarge the place of your tent because you will have more children, more grandchildren, almost certainly. Um, and then verse three, we have this very interesting statement. You will spread abroad to the right and to the left, um, which is in fact, uh, if we have a very obvious uh, look at the life of Noah in, in verse nine, here we have perhaps a bit of a reference to the Tower of Babel, where everybody clumps together and they all gather together, which of course, like, like I said earlier, this isn't an unusual thing to, to gather together as a community, as a family. But in this case, they will also spread out. They will move out and they will possess nations. They will people desolate cities, um, which is in fact the opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel where everybody joined together, and what happened at the Tower of Babel? Well, God confounded their language. Um, he he um, came in and he uh, changed how people communicated with one another. But here in the very next verse, verse it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. Um perhaps another uh, slight reference to, to this concept of um, the Tower of Babel. Now, is that Isaiah's intent? Uh, frankly, I'm not sure we can know, which sometimes can be annoying because we want to know everything that's going on. We want to understand everything that's happening. But will we? Do we understand everything? Is the barren woman someone who has a husband or not? Um, because she both seems to not have a husband and she seems to have a husband. Uh, the same word is used in verse 1 for uh, her who is married, which is um, Be'ulah, I think, coming from the word Ba'al, master. Um, and which often was used for a husband. Uh, and verse 5, for your maker is your husband. Um, Ba'alecha, or Ba'alech, actually, female, sorry. Um, so you have this person who both has and has not. 
and the struggle between what ich and what igent is going to transfer over to, I think, what we'll find is the main part of the chapter that we'll look at today. Um, but just to get you oriented towards this, do they or do they not? Will God or will God not? Um, and and that is a struggle that we're going to have to face. And it's a struggle that Israel is actually facing right now. Um, and people who are in Israel are facing right now. And I imagine that struggle is not unusual. Is God guarding Israel or is God not guarding Israel? Is God... Um, you know, whatever it might be in your life, is God present or is God not present? Um, sometimes we struggle with these questions. Uh, and here in verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she cast off, says your God. And this is where we struggle. Because God is calling the wife back. She's calling this barren woman back to himself. And of course, that implies that she needs to come back. Which is exactly... Sorry, I thought I heard the siren for a second. Uh, which is exactly what verse 7 says. For a brief moment, I deserted you. Yeah, I don't think that's the siren. Anyways, sorry. Uh, for a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. So there's this desertion. And in fact, usually we always assume that it is the wife that is leaving. Um we see this again in, in places like Hosea. But what's happening here? God is angry. God is hiding his face. Which is the opposite of what we hear in Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26, the, the um, ironic blessing. Right, where we pray that God will um, keep his face towards you. Here it says, I deserted you. I will have compassion, but I did desert you. In anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. I mean, I will have everlasting love and I will have compassion on you, but there's still that anger. There's still that moment where God hides his face from the barren woman, presumably Israel uh, in this particular case. And how do we deal with that? The very next verse is about the days of Noah. This is like the days of Noah to me. I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. Well, that's all fine and good. But that implies that if we look back at the story, that there was, that there were water, was, was water 
over the earth, that it covered the earth. Um, one of Aaron's favorite sayings is that um, Noah was the worst evangelist in the history of the world. Um, he had, from the time he was 500 until the time he was 600, 100 years, if not, in fact, longer, to bring people to God. And yet, when he gets on the boat, he only has his wife, his three children, and his three daughters-in-law. And that's it. And everything else God is angry with, he is going to destroy. And sometimes we have to recognize that God is righteous and holy and the judge. We can't ignore that part of Scripture. We can't say there's no book of Joshua, there's no book of Judges, there's no book of, of Genesis. Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Nahum. Oh, wait, we also have to get rid of Revelation. We have to get rid of Matthew. We have to get rid of right all of these different books if we want to say, because it's not just in the Tanakh. Um, if you read Matthew, uh, there are some moments when you see that God will be a judge. God will judge people and he will judge them harshly. Um, harshly perhaps isn't the right word. He will judge them uh, based on what they deserve. But God here specifically is the one who hid his face, who deserted the barren woman, for a brief time. In the days of Noah, he's the one who opened up the waters and let the waters cover the face of the earth. And that can be very difficult to deal with. The other half of it that for a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. God seems to have anger, whatever that might look like. We can't just say, oh, God, God never gets angry. He seems to but he also has this aspect of compassion on people who frankly don't deserve it. He has love that is everlasting to a people that frankly don't deserve it. And so you have this time now when we're going to go into verses uh, 9 through 17 in, in Isaiah 54, um, and then it's very beloved passage in some ways because it is going to talk about a, a covenant relationship. 
and uh, different um, Jewish writing he will reference Isaiah 54, Isaiah 55, and they talk about the covenant relationship that they have with God, or more specifically, the covenant relationship God has with them. This is the day of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Interesting that... Um, We really have this covenant of peace mentioned in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is obviously coming relatively early uh, in the Jewish uh, lifespan, shall we say. Um, if we start with, with Abraham... Uh, the Jewish people are still here today. And they will be here for as long as uh, the earth shall be here. Um, but Isaiah is talking about the covenant of peace that will not be removed. Now, once again, you have the question of, well, what about the Babylonian captivity? What about the Greeks and the Romans? What about Spain and France, England, Italy, Russia? Right? When? What is this covenant of peace? How has it not been removed? But this is his promise, and the people of Israel hold on to it. And I'll come to a couple of quotes from um, various rabbis shortly um, as we get into the last part. I just want to give a few little anecdotes from verses 11 and 12 first, and then we'll get into uh, a little bit more serious things once again. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncle, and all your wall of precious stones. Now, uh, some of these words are actually, relatively speaking, um, people aren't sure exactly what they mean. Um, however, you have uh, an argument between a rabbi and a student uh, which he found in um, Tractate uh, Baba Batra, uh, 75, Tractate 75. And they're arguing, uh, Rabbi Yochanan uh, says, The Holy One, blessed be he, will in time to come, bring precious stones and pearls, which are 30 cubits by 30, and will cut them, cut out from them openings, 10 cubits by 20, and will set them up in the gates of Jerusalem, which might sound uh, slightly familiar um, to Revelation. A certain student sneered at him, 
Jewelry of Hyach of a dove's eager not to be found. Are jewels of such a size to be found? As in, you know, 30 cubits by 30 cubits. After a time, his ship sailed out to sea where he saw ministering angels engaged in cutting precious stones and pearls, which were 30 cubits by 30, and on which were engravings of 10 cubits by 20. He said unto them, this is the student, for whom are these? They replied that the Holy One, blessed be he, would in time to come set them up in the gates of Jerusalem. And then when the student came again before Rabbi Yochanan, he said unto him, Expound, O my master, this becoming for you to expound as you have said, so I have seen. And so he's physically seen what his teacher had told him about um, these gates that would be made. Uh, in the future. And Rabbi Yochanan's response was, um, you idiot, had you not seen, would you not have believed? You were then sneering at the word of the sages. So Rabbi Yochanan shut his eyes on him and the student turned into a heap of bones. Um, the uh, anecdote um Basically stating, look, if you're reading scripture and expounding on it, take it seriously. Uh, even if you're just talking about uh, the foundations, the, the stones that will be used to build uh, the future city of, of Jerusalem, like pay attention to what's going on. Um, don't just assume that it's unimportant or that it's, it's simply... Um, allegorical or whatever. Uh, actually study it out, listen to it, um, and, and pay attention. Um, so while we might not know exactly what the purpose of um, mentioning this uh, future city is, uh, I do know that Isaiah very specifically talks about a foundation over and over and over again that God himself will lay a foundation on which the people can stand. Uh, and, and in this case, it will be a foundation that is both beautiful and strong, and that um, we will also find in other books of the Bible like Revelation. Uh, and, and part of the reason why uh, Rabbi Yochanan or the story came about was because of verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Right? Pay attention to what God has to say. Listen to what he has to say, even if it's just about um, what kind of stones are being set, what kind of gates are going to be made, what the walls will be, what the walls will look like. Pay attention uh, because God is teaching, he will personally teach the children. And when God teaches, what happens? Peace. Peace will come upon the children when God teaches. There is a teaching, um, a preacher who um, was at Christ Church two weeks ago, I believe, um, the day after the attack. Um on the seventh, and he came. He preached on the eighth because, frankly, none of our preachers were 
really up to the task that day. Uh, so he stepped in in the morning and he preached on the Ten Commandments. And he said, if, if people followed the Ten Commandments, if they looked at the law of God and they stopped saying, I want to live in freedom. I want to be able to choose to live however I want to live. I want to do whatever I want to do. They stopped that and just said, you know what? This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to obey his commandments. I'm going to listen to the Torah. I'm going to follow them. I'm going to hear what God has to say. I will be taught by God. The world did that. There would be peace. You wouldn't have to worry about people stealing anything. So you wouldn't have to worry about locking anything. You wouldn't have to worry about um, what people would do to you. You could walk anywhere you wanted at any point in the day. You could go where you wanted to. You could um, visit. You could do anything you want. If you wanted to go to North Korea, no problem. See some of the beautiful places that God made in that part of the world. Meet some of the beautiful people that God made in that part of the world. Made in the image of God. Today, if you wanted to, if you were um, born in Gaza, you could walk to Jerusalem. If you were born in Jerusalem, you could walk to Gaza. And everybody would meet each other and they would bless each other and they would say, the peace of the Lord be with you. Because they hear the word of the Lord, they're taught by God, and they listen, and in listening, they hear, and in hearing, they obey. So even in these relatively minor concepts that we might think of, God is teaching us. The children will be taught by God. Therefore, great will be their peace. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. Right? If, there's, if people are hearing God, if they're following him, if they're obeying him, What's there to fear? From terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. And I think this is the part of the chapter that we look at, and we're like, wow, how is it that the half Torah of the week happens to be exactly what the people of Israel are talking about? How is it that the half Torah of the week happens to be the thing that people perhaps need to hear? 
God's covenant is, in fact, enduring. I think this is what we want to talk about. We want to say, wow, this is amazing. What God has done or what God is doing is amazing. How can I prove that God exists? Well, as the quote goes, the Jewish people still exist. Despite all the persecution, despite all the trouble, despite the fact that there are an ancient people who have been dispersed around the world, and by all human thought, they should be gone. They exist. And God has promised an everlasting love, verse 8. Steadfast love, verse 10. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You shall be established in righteousness. Don't need to fear, not even from terror. And if people strike out, if they stir up strife, it's not from me. But again, we come to the question then, what happened? I mean, this is before, um, actually, no, it's after, never mind. It's after Nahum, I think. Um, that can be corrected at some point. Um, but you have stories like Nahum, who, who says that God brought a nation to chastise Israel. And two weeks ago, we had, um, I'm not going to say that the attack was... Um, the chastisement of God, we cannot possibly know that. Um, but uh, nonetheless, there was great fear and terror. And strife is stirred up. And weapons that were created seem to have succeeded. So let me read um, some of the early Jewish writings on some of these subjects. First, a quote. Um, ooh, I did not write where I got this quote from. I should have done that. It is from Bava Batra, I think. Uh, from the Talmud, um, Rabbi Yochanan. He quoted, when you see a generation, oh, I'm smart, I added a link. Um, when you see a generation ever dwindling, hope for him, namely the Messiah, as it is written, and the afflicted people thou wilt save. And when thou seest a generation overwhelmed by many troubles as by a river, await him, as it is written, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift a standard against him. Which is, um, so we actually currently see uh, there is a, an article in in one of the newspapers that stated that all uh, many of the Jewish uh, soldiers and reserves 
um, suddenly all wanted to have a heat heat. <laughs> um, and here there was actually a, uh, a bunch of people were brought together to start uh, twisting them together and make them because suddenly the soldiers are like, oh, wait, maybe we should pay attention to God, the things that are of God. You have people who are suddenly declaring um, the some of the people who were saved um, out of the disaster, uh, talking about the blessed one, God. Right? You you keep having stories of the Jewish people even to this day, when you would think they would be declaring, "Where was God? Why was he asleep?" He promised he wasn't going to sleep. He promised he would not slumber. He promised that he would guard us. But suddenly they're looking around and they're going, wait, we need God. We can't depend on ourselves. We can't just assume that we can do whatever we want. We can't assume that our technology, our cameras, our, um, you know, whatever it might be, our IDF will protect us. And so you have the people turning, perhaps not completely towards God, but they are starting to listen. Of course, that's happened before, and it will probably happen again. But uh, Rabbi Yochanan, this is 1,600 years ago, um, written 1,600, 1,700 years ago, saw that in his time as well. He knew it would be true then, just to hear this true now. Um, but interestingly enough, what's the other side of it? Because he didn't stop with that quote. Um, Rabbi Yochanan continued and said that the Messiah will either come when the generation is altogether righteous or altogether wicked. Right? We don't know. How can we possibly know? We don't know which is going to happen, how it's going to happen, when is the Messiah going to come? Well, it might be when everybody follows God, or it might be when no one is following God. Right? Either way. Um, another rabbi, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, uh, replied to this comment by saying, um, if the Messiah comes to an unrighteous generation, he will be riding on an ass. And if he comes to a righteous generation, he will come with the clouds of heaven. Which is an interesting statement. Um, that, uh, again, we can't necessarily conclude that he's correct on that. Um, but it is still an interesting statement. You have in this section um, many different communities throughout the Jewish history from the Qumran community um, through the rabbi, through uh, later on the, um, the Talmudic period, the um, Spanish and uh, Arabic periods of, of Jewish rabbinical thought on uh, French as well. 
in the 1100s, 1100s, 1200s, uh, you see this covenant pop up over and over of God coming to save his people, to be there for them, to establish an everlasting covenant, one of peace, despite the fact that over and over and over there's persecution, over and over and over there are troubles. Interestingly enough, in um, 54, 16, uh, God says, I have also created the ravager to destroy, which is a um, very, I believe, a very strong reference to Noah. Uh, that same word is used eight or nine times in Exodus or in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 9 that God came to destroy with a flood. He came to destroy all that has breath. He came to destroy, to blot out that which we living. And here he says, I created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. And you see that. And yet, verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And I think you have, again, from the beginning, you have a barren woman who is also married. Both. And the one she's married to is the one who made her, the creator of the universe, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. And you have this juxtaposition of a woman who is crying out because she is barren. But she will cry out for joy. She will sing aloud. This woman who isn't like the one who is married. And yet she is. You have the days of Noah. Where you have this juxtaposition of a God who is merciful who put a rainbow in the clouds to, to declare that he, well, actually, technically, it, it doesn't say he put a rainbow in the clouds. It just says that the bow that is in the clouds will be a, a sign of the covenant. It was already there, science. Um, but uh, he used that as an indicator of his covenant that he will not destroy the earth in that way again. And here, Naya, he's talking about how there will be a covenant of peace, even as in the days of Noah, which again, the days of Noah, there are eight people alive because God had just killed everyone else. Uh, there's a story um, from Tractate Abodah Yara uh, 17, which is in the Talmud. Um, and the question is, will God destroy someone only 
if they were idolatry, or are there other sins that can cause idolatry or that can cause death? And you have the story of a rabbi who was um, exceedingly lustful, Rabbi Eliezer uh, Dodia, and he would travel the world to find every harlot that's in the world. And he would travel over rivers, he would travel over oceans, he would go wherever he could go to fulfill the lust that he had. He would pay whatever price needed to be paid. And one day, um, he heard that his death was going to come upon him, basically. So this is the story. He thereupon went and sat between two hills and mountains and exclaimed, O ye hills and mountains, plead for mercy for me. They replied, How shall we pray for thee? We stand in need of it ourselves for the shed, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. Quoting Isaiah 54.10. So he exclaimed, Heaven and earth, plead ye for mercy for me. And they too replied, How shall we pray for thee? We stand in need of it ourselves for the shed, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax away like an old garment. He then exclaimed, Sun and moon, moon, plead ye for mercy for me. But they also replied, How shall we pray for thee? We stand in need of it ourselves. For the shed, then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. He exclaimed, Stars and constellations, plead ye for mercy for me. And they said, How shall we pray for thee? I wish they hadn't written this in um, King James language, but we'll continue. We stand in need of it ourselves, for the shed and all the hosts of heaven shall molder away. And then he said, The matter then depends upon me alone. And having placed his head between his knees, he wept aloud until his soul departed. Then the Kol was told, proclaiming, Rabbi Eliezer Dodiah is destined for the life of the world to come. In that case, too, since he was so much addicted to immorality, it is said that he was guilty of idolatry, roughly speaking. Um, and the rabbi who heard it, uh, one of his comrades wept. And he said, one may acquire eternal life after many years, but another in one hour. Rabbi also said, the rabbi who heard it, also said, repentance are not alone accepted. Um, we'll skip that phrase, actually. Um, so the, the concept is repent. <laughs> um, and you find that again in Ezekiel. If you live your entire life in sin, yet you repent, God will hear. If you live your entire life in righteousness, and yet you turn from him, there are consequences. And you have the dichotomy of thoughts. They're not bad. They're actually quite useful. Because we will come across 
times in this world where we feel like we are barren, where we feel like we are going to cry because we have nothing. And yet, at the same time, we are barren. If God, maker of us, is our husband, there will be times when we will have a covenant, or we, it will seem like we have a covenant of peace, but it is only after a mass destruction, a judgment for what we rightly deserve. Um, I'm not trying to turn all of this into us and Christianity. I'm just saying that in our lives, we will face certain situations. And we've had people who are Christians. And when um, they started to watch, uh, even on the same day, videos of children being killed, of people being burnt and beheaded, they asked, where is God? Why is he asleep? Where is this covenant of peace? Why are the weapons working? We'll just, I'll finish my part shortly. 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Where is God? How can we know he is even? I think the answer that uh, is so popular works. The Jews, they exist. They are here. God has protected them. They have struggled. They have been persecuted. But they're still here. And verse 6, which is actually in the Karite <laughs> half Torah, which we aren't necessarily going to look at, but I'll read it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Um, this is actually a very difficult phrase. Because it implies that God is not always near. Just like it said earlier, I hid my face from you 
for a brief moment at the year of the year. Here, seek the Lord. Come, eat, drink, listen, incline your ear, go to him, hear that your soul may live. When will the Messiah come? When will this covenant be fully fulfilled? When will no weapon work against God's people? For that matter, when will no weapon be needed? We don't actually know. But I do know that perhaps we shouldn't be seeking it too hard because the day of the Lord will be terrible. Because you have both sides. We have both sides now. We will have both sides in the future. Peace, judgment. A husband, a barren wife. But the barren wife will sing aloud. So with that, uh, let's open it up. And uh, if I didn't confuse too much with my wandering thought process, we'll see if there are any questions.